If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 9, if you do not have your own copy or don't have it on your phone, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you, which can be found on page 917. We'll be reading the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9. But Paul, still breathing, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Amen. You may be seated. When we think through the history of God, we can think of many giants, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, David, names that are synonymous with the faith, all leading up to the name, the name above all names, the name that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be forever blessed. And as we come to the New Testament, there is one name that surpasses them all. You might think that would be Peter. But I believe that there is one that surpasses even him. And that is Saul, who is also known as Paul. Saul of Tarsus, outside of the Lord himself, is the greatest figure in the New Testament, bar none. In fact, I would go as far as to say that out of all the saints that have lived on earth, there may be no greater or more significant saint than that of Paul. As one commentator put it, there is no more significant Christian in Christendom than the apostle Paul. And I believe that is true. The impact that he has, has had effects upon the entirety of the world, to spreading the good news of the gospel to all the saints that lived on earth to the ends of the known world, to writing half of the New Testament. Each and every one of us can say we know Jesus and know Jesus better this day because of the life and ministry of Paul. And yet this man, who according to sources of the day, was, quote, small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, with eyebrows meeting in the middle, unibrow, and a nose somewhat hooked. In other words... He was not a handsome or stately dude. There was nothing impressive about him. Ladies, if you saw Paul's profile on a dating website, you would have scrolled on by, to put it in 21st century language. But this single, bald, bow-legged man has done more for the kingdom of Christ than any mere man that has ever lived and the rest of the book of Acts will 
recount this, will almost exclusively be devoted to his work, to his ministry. And even that is just a summary of all the things that he was able, by God's grace, to accomplish. Well, this morning we are introduced to him in one of his, what, perhaps the most famous of passages in the book of Acts, and what is no doubt the most famous conversion story of all times. It's the Damascus Road conversion. But before Paul can do what Paul is going to do, before he can be well used by the Lord, he has to meet King Jesus. And that is exactly what happens in dramatic fashion in our passage before us. In fact, so radical is this man's life change that no one truly would believe it. It's a miraculous gift, full of grace, the same as yours, as well as mine. And so we'll see this passage in just two simple points, darkness and lights. First, darkness. Chapter 9 begins this way, but Saul, and this is a reminder by Luke that even though there was great ministerial success taking place in chapter 8 as the gospel goes forth to Samaria and even to the ends of the world and the Ethiopian eunuch, Luke brings the reader's attention back to what was taking place there in Jerusalem, that the threat had not gone away. If anything, it had gotten bigger and worse. And this Saul that he begins with in chapter 9 is the same Saul that we read of in chapter 7 who approved of and was the ringleader of Stephen's execution. This is the one who dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And what Paul says, or excuse me, what Luke says here is that Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. That that Paul was still there, that Saul was still there. The level of vitriol had risen to such a level that Luke tells us that it was as if it was the air that he breathed. He was a man possessed in eradicating this cult, in his eyes, a cult, called the way, wanting to blot out any remembrance of this false Messiah named Jesus. Well, we must ask the question, who is this Saul, and how did he get to this point? And this is where a little background is in order. First of all, we know from his name that he was Jewish, He was born into a Jewish family and that he originated from Tarsus. So he's Saul of Tarsus, which was in the province of Cilicia, which is in the eastern portion of modern Turkey, a place that Paul will say in chapter 21 was no insignificant town, even though it was not as great in size as Athens or Alexandria. It was a place of culture and philosophy and education. To be able to say that you are of Tarsus meant something. It would have people to sit up and to take notice. It was the who's who, in other words, of the Greek and Roman world. It'd be like if someone said that they were from Oxford or from Cambridge. 
There was a certain level of prestige, being able to say that you were from Tarsus. And this Saul, who was fully Jewish, from the tribe of Benjamin, was also a Roman citizen. As we'll see in later chapters, he'll use that for his advantage, for the advantage of the spread of the kingdom. But this man was born a Roman citizen. And so thus he also had a Roman name, the name of Paul. Now many believe that he changed his name after conversion or that the Lord changed his name, but we have no record of this. The reality is that he probably always had that name, that he had Saul, which was his Jewish name, and Paul, which was his Greek or Roman name. And he was probably called Paul because Paulos rhymes with Solos, the, the Greek way of saying psalm. And even more than that, Paulos or Paul means small, small Paul. So in other words, because he was a short man, it seems like small in stature, maybe you would even say a pipsqueak, it fits, right? It was probably like a nickname to him, one that he kept. And this man who was a Roman citizen we know became a Roman citizen, and the only way that a non-Roman could become a Roman citizen was through the possession of land or a family possessing land. So we know from that again that his family probably had a certain amount of means. They were well, uh, quite well to do. And we know this even from further evidence by the fact that Paul spent a, a good bit of his education not in Tarsus, but in Jerusalem. Essentially, his family, his parents sent him off to boarding school, to Jerusalem, that his parents were so committed that their son learned the way of Judaism that they shipped him off to Jerusalem for him to be educated there so that he could call himself a Hebrew. See, it was one thing to be Jewish, but it was another to be called a Hebrew. It's kind of like saying that there's something to be college educated. There's something totally different to be Ivy school educated. And that was essentially what was taking place with Saul. And it was there that he seemingly excelled more than the others. He studied under and became the disciple of one of the most famous rabbis in the first century, that of Gamaliel who was introduced in chapter 5. And Saul, under his tutelage, became a Pharisee, the strictest adherence to Judaism. And in many ways, he was a, a rising star in the Pharisaical circles, as one that was totally and utterly committed. You might even begin to say that he began to rise beyond that of his teacher, that of his rabbi. Now, it's only speculation, but it might have been the words of Gamaliel that really sparked Saul's zeal. You remember what Gamaliel said in Acts chapter 5. If you don't, you can turn back there. You remember that the disciples were arrested. Peter was arrested and they are trying to, the, the, the Pharisees, the council of Pharisees is trying to determine what they are to do to him. And Gamaliel has this advice. He says, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, there was a man that rose up 
and he was killed. And those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him was another man, the same thing that took place. So verse 36, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, it seems that Saul, no doubt, was probably a part of that council, a part of that meeting. And I can say that Paul seemingly wholeheartedly disagreed with the advice and counsel of his teacher. Leave them alone? Do nothing? Are you kidding me? These people are blasphemers. Do you know what the law says should be done to blasphemers? And we might be the ones that are opposing God. No, they are opposing God. No, we have to do something about this. And perhaps even in private, he was telling people, oh, the old man has grown soft. It seems like from that moment, it became the mission of Saul to eradicate Christianity. And he did so because he believed that he was doing the work of God. You remember a story in the Old Testament as the people were wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites were engaging in Baal worship like the nations around them, which involved temple prostitution. And there was an Israelite in plain day who took a Midianite woman home with him. And it says that Phineas, one of the priests, saw this. And he followed this man and woman into the house and with one spear pierced through the both of them. And we hear these words of the Lord, that Phineas has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. In other words, Phineas was zealous. And so when it says in Philippians chapter 3, when, when Paul thinks about his past, he's able to say, in regards to zeal, I persecuted the church. He no doubt thought of himself as a modern day Phineas, so zealous for the Lord that he would persecute the church. See, he saw himself just as Phineas, as one that was ending false worship in the land. And what we see, that even though he believed it, he was not a Phineas at all. In fact, he was not doing the work of God. He was, in fact, doing exactly what his teacher said that they should not do, that they might be absolutely opposing God, opposing the work of God. And yet that is how darkened in his understanding and blinded in his zeal that he was. So much that we read here that he was breathing threats and murder against Christians. See, that was Saul. That is why in Philippians chapter 3, Saul can say, Paul can say, if anyone could boast, it was me. That I was circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
See, that is not Paul being braggadocious. It was all true in terms of upbringing, in terms of pedigree, in terms of status and resume. You could not score higher. He was a five-star recruit, and if there was a six, he would have had that too. And yet he was lost, utterly and hopelessly lost. As one of my friends used to say, he was lost as an Easter egg. That's how lost he truly was. And it makes me think, what is it that we want? And what is it that we specifically want for our kids and our grandkids? Let's specifically apply it right there. Is our hopes and our dreams that they would become elite, that they would become premier, that they would become top of the class, that they would have distinguished honors? Saul had all of those things. And yet he was lost. He did not know Jesus. And later, Paul would say, in comparison to knowing Christ, all of those things are rubbish. Not that those things do not matter. We want our kids to excel far beyond us. Don't get me wrong. But in comparison to knowing Christ, they are as nothing. They are as rubbish before us. And if they would even exclude our children from knowing Jesus, then they are damnable tools of Satan. And so make sure your hopes and your dreams and your prayers are focused on the right thing for your children and for your grandchildren at first and foremost, above all else, that they would know Christ, that they would have salvation, that the Holy Spirit would bring to bear all that is promised at their baptism upon their hearts and their souls, because I tell you, nothing else matters. And children and youth, let me speak to you for a moment. All of you have had a privileged upbringing. If you are in this place, or if you are an American, then you are privileged. But let me tell you, there is no greater privilege than knowing and hearing about Christ. Having parents and having a church teach you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you that you need to believe in him. Don't believe just because you're a part of a Christian family and you go to church that that is enough. That is not enough. You must believe in him with all your hearts and all your mind. Despite Saul's lost condition, his dragon-like demeanor. He was not out of the reach of God or too far gone because out of the darkness came light. And that is what we see in our second point, having received essentially arrest warrants for any belonging to the way. Saul heads out to Damascus. See, he was not content that the Christians had left Jerusalem. No, he was going to go as far as they go so that they could not spread their damnable lies, he, th he thought. And so he heads to Damascus, about 150 miles away, to do the same there. And we're told that he almost got there, but uh, he ran into a bit of a roadblock, a spiritual roadblock. It says that there was a light from heaven that shone. And we know from Elsewhere, when Paul recounts his testimony, we know that it was midday when this took place. So this was not just the light of the sun. No, this was blinding light. This was light that was so bright that it was an indication of only one thing, the presence of God. 
Saul would have known that, right, from the Old Testament, that God demonstrated himself in light. And this was so bright, it threw him to the ground. Most likely he was riding on horseback, and so this was quite the fall and not a comfortable one at that. And there on the ground, he heard this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Children, if you know your parents have to repeat your name twice, you know you're in deep trouble, right? (laughs) Saul was in big trouble. It's one thing to be in trouble with your parents. It's another thing to be in trouble with the Almighty God. And this is such a one. This one is God himself. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood Jesus. No, this is the risen and exalted King of kings and Lord of lords Jesus. This is the judge of all the earth. This is the voice of the Lord Jesus that Psalm 29 talks about, that the voice of Yahweh is the glory of God that thunders. It's the voice of Yahweh that is powerful. It's the voice of Yahweh that is full of majesty, that breaks the cedars, that flashes forth flames of fire, that shakes the wilderness. That's the Jesus that Paul encountered that day. Paul saw and heard all of that. And it is as if the whole earth had opened up and heaven had now shone its lights right upon him. It's the same light, it's the same voice, it's the same thunder that all of us will experience at the end times when Jesus comes back again. Many people ask, will, will we know when he comes? Oh, believe me, we will know. Just like Saul could not have dismissed this or gone around it or thought it was nothing. This stopped him in his tracks. Because it's in this midst of this glory, in the midst of this awe, you hear this little pip squeak of a man who thought that he was big, who thought that he was powerful, who thought that he was tough, who was absolutely thrown to the ground in the presence of King Jesus, who's humbled in the dust and felt probably like the size of a piece of dust. And in the probably the most feeble of voices, I don't know this for sure, but probably breaking mid-sentence, he's able to squeak out this little question, who are you, Lord? Listen to that. Who are you, Lord? It's a question that he already answered. He already knows who it is. But what I find fascinating about it is that's the turning point. That is the conversion of everyone when they realize and have that spiritual awakening that indeed they are not the Lord and that he is the Lord and that we are but nothing. It's an Isaiah 6 moment, isn't it? Woe is me. I am unclean. I'm amidst a people that is unclean. I am nothing. I am less than nothing. I am a sinner. Oh, to have all mankind have that realization. And I tell you, when that takes place, it is not pleasant, is it? 
It's like having open heart surgery where your heart and your mind is exposed to the holiness and radiance of God. That was Saul. Probably with his back against the dirt and his hands covering his eyes. And then to hear these words, to hear this one answer his question and say, I am. To hear the I am say, I am. Remember, that is the divine name of God, I am. And just to remove all doubt, he gives his name, I am Jesus. This I am is Jesus. Talk about having an oh snickerdoodles moment. This is it, right? Because he finally came to the realization of who he was against. That this is not just I am Jesus. This is I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And it's beautiful, isn't it, that Jesus so identifies with his people that it's not just his people that are being persecuted. It is he that is being persecuted. That if you touch the Lord's body, You've also touched the head as well because they are one. In a very small way, it's like a certain 14-year-old that's in my home when he starts messing with his sisters. And then his dad comes and says, if you mess with them, you mess with me. But this is the Lord. And I think probably in that moment, Saul thought the earth was going to swallow him up like Korah, Datham, and Abihu, that he would sink down into the depths of the earth to the pit of the hell because he realized in that moment that he was opposing God. He was opposing the anointed, that he was the enemy of God. Do you understand that in your sin that you are an enemy of God? That if you are not trusting in Christ, You cannot look at God with indifference and God does not look at your life with indifference. That God does his thing, I'll just kind of do my own thing and we're all okay. No, if you are opposed to God, then you are an enemy of God. Jesus says, if you're not for me, you are against me and God is against you in your evil and in your sinfulness as an unrighteous doer. And you might say that's kind of alarming, that's a stark word. I tell you, that's the most loving word that I can tell you. Because that's the spiritual condition of where you're at. And for me to warn you of that is for me to love you as you ought to be loved. The earth does not swallow up Saul or us. And it's the first of much mercy that is given. Instead, Paul hears these words saying, rise and enter the city and you be told what you are to do. And he rises and it told that his eyes, though they were open, he could not see. And so he must be led into the city. Can you imagine this picture, this man who is great and mighty and powerful that now needs to be led like a little child? And we read in verse 9 that for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now we don't know. We won't know until we meet Paul in glory one day, but I think that those three days were complete hell on earth. That they were complete and utter misery. 
Now, you might think, well, he just met Jesus. Wouldn't he be joyful? Wouldn't he, wouldn't he understand all the good news of the gospel? I think that came later, as we'll see next week with Ananias. And why do I say that? Because Saul was struck with blindness. And that was not just a, a tit for tat from Jesus, some type of retribution. You persecuted my people, so I'm going to persecute you. No, what was placed upon him was a curse. Because what we read in Deuteronomy in the book of the law and the sections of blessing and curses that one of the indications of being cut off from the covenant was being struck with blindness. And so we read this in Deuteronomy 28, 28, the Lord will strike you with blindness and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in the darkness. That's exactly what took place to Saul. And Paul, Saul, knowing the, the law backwards and forwards, would have known this, and he would have thought, I am cut off from God. I'm cut off from his covenant and from his promises. I am lost eternally. The Lord's hesed, the Lord's loving kindness is not upon me. And I believe that it was in those three days that he experienced utter dread, crying out for mercy. When it says that he neither ate nor drank, I don't think that's because he was fasting. It's because food and water were the furthest things from his mind at that time. I think that those three days were like a Jonah-like experience in the belly of the fish. Where we read of Jonah saying, it's in the belly of Sheol that I cried. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The water closes over in me and takes my life. The deep surrounds me. I think that was Paul's experience as well. I think his life was in a complete and utter freefall for three days. Just as Jesus went to the grave for three days, so too I think the apostle Paul did as well. And he experienced a spiritual death so that after three days he might experience the newness, the, the, the rising from life, the resurrection of the life. See, it was in the darkness of not being able to see that he experienced the misery of his own sin and the depth of his own spiritual blindness. Everything that he thought was true was false. Everything that he had given his life to was a lie. And the utter consequences of his zealous pursuit. The men and women and children were not only put in prison, they lost their lives. That precious and innocent blood was shed because of him. That he was guilty of murder and the blood was upon his hands. I think it was the utter dread of that situation that must have been completely overwhelming to him. I think it was the memory of those things that, that haunted Paul all the days of his life. So when he speaks of himself as the chief of sinners, that was not a hyperbole. He meant every word. And it all happened in a moment, in an instant. He went from being the best, the preeminent, the creme de la creme, to being a worm, and even lower than that, all because he saw the true glory of God and his own wretchedness. Let me ask you, has there been times in your own life that the weight and burden of your sin was truly upon you? That you experienced your own wretchedness 
Have you ever had, has the Lord allowed you to have times in the belly of the way, the belly of Sheol, spiritually speaking? Do you know what it means? Like Paul knew what it means when he says that we've been buried with Christ, that our sin has brought about death. The wages of sin is death, not only the death of the Son of God, which is enough, but our own death as well. We need to understand the deadliness of our sins. See, we're so often flippant about sins. We just have this kind of blase attitude. Oh yeah, I sin, they sin, he sins, she sins, everybody sins. There's no one that's perfect. No, there is one that's perfect. And it's to him that we must give an account and we cannot. Therefore, the, the wrath of God is rightly upon us. And you might be saying, Preacher, get to, the, get to the hope, get to the solution. And I will. And praise God, there is a solution. But we need to sit with this for a while. We need to sit with Paul in those three days and mourn with him. Notice I said mourn with him, not for him. With him, because we are the same, just like him. See, there's a, a great spiritual principle that it's in the, in the glorious, unfathomable light of the glory of Christ that we see our own sin and see our own wretchedness. Like I said it before, on the road to Damascus, Paul thought of himself as a good person, a godly person, even doing the work of God. And yet it's in the light of the holiness of Christ that he was humbled to the dust. He was realized his true spiritual condition. He was cut off. He was without hope, without Christ. And conversion, if you want to know what it is, is a, is a sinner being confronted with their own sin because of the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of Christ. See, what is true of Saul must be true of us all. Some of you might be thinking, wow, this, this church talks a, talks a lot about sin, preaches about sin, has confession of sin. I don't know if I like that. Well, let me tell you, we don't do it so that you would feel bad about yourself. At least, that's not primarily why we would do it. It's so that you would see reality rightly. That you would see the, the glory of Christ. That you would see Him high and lifted up and exalted in the heavens, glorious and, and radiant. And in the light of that, see ourselves rightly see ourselves correctly. We're not seeing ourselves badly. No, we're seeing ourselves in the way that we truly are, in the light of who God is. Because then and only then do you understand the, the riches of God's grace and his mercy and the favor that he has been given to you. See, God doesn't need us. He didn't have to do what he's done. And he surely did not need to go to the extents that he has gone, but he has. Why? Well, only one word, grace. Maybe even two words, amazing grace. See, it's through our own wretchedness that we understand the extent of God's grace and his mercy and his love and his favor that is upon us. 
when we give that blessing and that benediction at the end, that God's face would be upon you. It's a face of radiance and grace and peace. Do you understand that's a different than the face of, of you being an enemy of God where you only experience his wrath and experience his anger. It's all because of Christ. It's all because of his amazing grace. It's only then that that grace truly becomes amazing. And we'll see more of this next week, I promise you, when we see Ananias and his coming with this word of grace to Saul. Suffice it to say this day that hopefully each and every one of us have had a similar spiritual encounter like Saul had. Or you realized who he is and therefore realized who you are. And if you have not, maybe perhaps today is that day. Today would be your Damascus road or your Atlanta road or whatever you want to call it because he stands here today. And I tell you, he is no less glorious. He is no less holy. And he is no less full of grace and truth. That is the Jesus that says, I am Jesus, he is the answer. He is the hope. He is the forgiveness of sins. He is the grace that each and every one so desperately needs. And he is here. Do we see him? Do we have the eyes to perceive him? Well, we're going to close this morning by singing a very well-known hymn, Amazing Grace, which was written by John Newton. His life is quite well-known and quite documented And perhaps I could just summarize it with this. It's the summary that's on his tombstone. It reads this way. John Newton, a clerk, pastor, once an infidel and a libertine, which means fornicator, a servant of slaves in Africa, a slave trader, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. So that's the testimony, not of John Newton alone. That's the testimony of Saul. And honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, that's the testimony of each and every one of us. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Has saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Our Lord, would we have such an encounter this day through the Lord Jesus Christ? Would we see you as you truly are and see ourselves as we ought, which is also truly who we are, full of sickness and sin and death. There is no hope in us. There's no life in us, but there is great hope and there is great life in you. So we look to you this day to save us from our wretchedness, to save us from our sinfulness, so that we would know the glory of your grace and your favor that is upon us. We pray this all in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.